It is with tremendous joy and appreciation that I stand before you tonight. And really a little bit of disappointment. I'm sad this week is over. I've had a good time. And I've been well encouraged by being with you, uh, for you regular members here at Northfield and all of the visitors who have come all week. And for those of you who are here tonight, thank you for being here. I hope that what has been said this week has been encouraging, that it's been motivating, that it's been a challenge to us, that we all can walk away from these lessons saying, you know, I have some ideas of ways that I can do a little bit better in my work for Christ. If we've done that, then, then I say we've, uh, we've hit our mark for this week. And hopefully we'll continue that tonight as we move on to really what is obviously the title lesson for the series. The series we've called The Tipping Point. And uh, as you've seen in the, the invitations, the picture of the scales, and we have them here again tonight because that's what we're going to be talking about. The, the sense of, of weighing out our works and our attitudes and our behaviors and comparing them against the standard of God's word. I want us to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to read a few verses before we say anything else this evening. 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul writing to young preacher Timothy says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, for which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In this passage, as Paul is kicking off this letter to Timothy... He's already written to him before. He has spent time in his presence and he's writing again to encourage him and to motivate him and to remind him of some of some important things, namely that he needs to be sticking to the story of the gospel, trusting in its power, understanding what the gospel is as the the manifestation, the revealing of the great plan of God that he had from before time began to save the souls of mankind. And as such, and he's, he's telling him how critical it is, hold to the word, hold to the truth, always trust in that, and don't be afraid of what you might face. That's the message that we're preaching. That's what it's all about. I want to ask us a couple of questions as we start our lesson off tonight. Question number one, and this is a personal question for you. I don't want your answer. I want you to think about it, though. Are you personally allowing more worldly influences in your life or maybe in your home or in the church now than you would have 10 years ago. I want you to think about that for just a second and take, take a self-analysis real quick. Are you allowing more worldly influences? Are you okay with a few more worldly things in your life today than you were 10 years ago? What about in the way that your home operates? Or in the way that the church is operating? Are we collectively uh, allowing a little bit more worldliness than maybe we would have a few years ago? Question number two, 
do you view your success as a Christian according to the number of good things you do weighed against the number of bad things you do? Do you think of yourself and you say, okay, I'm living, I'm trying to be a good Christian here and I, and I go to church regularly, that's a positive. I read my Bible almost every day, that's a positive. I pray, I think, more frequently than most. I don't use bad language. Uh, but, then, uh, but then I have the, this attitude, this bad attitude. And I'm holding a grudge against someone and I'm bitter and I'm jealous about them. But you know, I've got a few more positive things than negative things. So all in all, I'd say I'm a good Christian. Or maybe you sort of feel like, you know, I've got a lot of problems. There's a lot of sins that I wrestle with regularly. And you know, I'm not at all the services like I know I need to be. I'm not a very good Christian. I'm not who God wants me to be. Do we, do we, do we think in those sort of terms? Well, I want to lead off with these questions because I want to illustrate that I think sometimes we think about things in a not exactly scriptural way. And I want us to discuss that a little bit further in our, in our, our lesson tonight. There are a lot of distinctions that we make that are made even among people who consider themselves true Christians, even among the Church of Christ. And we know these labels. We've heard these. On one side, you've got conservative. You've got non-institutional. We might say a sound group. And on the other hand, you've got these liberal churches. Maybe that means they're institutional churches. And we would definitely say, well, they're unsound. They're teaching things that, that aren't sound. Well, what does all that mean? Maybe we think, well, morally speaking, they're not very conservative. Or, or maybe they are. Or maybe they're liberal. Have you ever asked a question when you're traveling somewhere, you know someone who's been there before, you say, that church over there, is that a sound church? I've asked that question, you probably have too. It seems like a reasonable question, but what do we really mean when we ask that? Do we really mean, does that church believe the same thing that I believe on the big issues like marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Do they withdraw when there's disorderly conduct among their members? If so, if they, if they check those two boxes, then they're sound. You know, it's really, it's really hard for us to judge whether or not a church is sound. Uh, even if they hold to what we see as the big key problem areas that we sometimes face. The truth is we can't really know whether a church is truly sound just from an outside perspective. It's really one of the things that only the church knows and the Lord knows. Now, these labels that we sometimes put on things, while they're not all mentioned by name in Scripture, they can be useful for helping us to identify the direction that we are going. Sort of like when you look at a map, you know, you see these big dots on a map with a city name next to it. That dot doesn't really exist. That just helps us to know where we're going. And we, we have a little legend over here that says the big dots with a star, those are capital cities. And the little dots, well, those are just smaller cities. And, and we see what the signs mean, and it helps us to make sense of what we see around us, to know where we're going. These labels can be helpful, but we need to remember that the labels are very useless to us if we don't know what the dots mean. If we don't know what the label means, it doesn't do us a lot of good. Now, if I had to guess, and I think this is a pretty well-educated guess, then we might say that the church here at Northfield is a conservative, non-institutional church. And that's, I think that's good, and we would all agree on that. But does wearing that label if we were to somehow find grounds to put that on the sign out front to help people understand exactly what we are, does that mean that we are indeed the Lord's people just because we identify as being 
conservative or non-institutional or things like that. I think we need to ask better questions. And I think we need to come up with some better ways, some more scriptural labels before we just say, well, that's what the church is. They're either liberal or they're conservative. And really, I want to dig a little deeper and ask, I think, a, a more valuable question. And that question is, can a Christian be conservative or liberal and be a member of a group that is conservative or liberal as we might sometimes take a look at things? Well, I want us to look at some of these questions and try to find some Bible answers. Otherwise, what I, what I would have to say wouldn't mean a whole lot. But let's look at the Bibles at our, in our Bibles together tonight. The first thing that I want to suggest is that a church can be weak or strong, but more likely it's a mixture of both. More than likely, it is a mixture of both. Look with me firstly in, uh, in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. Titus chapter 2 verse 1, Paul writes to Titus and he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We can infer from that that if we are teaching what accords with sound doctrine and doing what accords with that sound teaching, then we're going to be a sound church. And that's a good thing. And that will give us some strength. Well, that's what we ought to be doing. A church can be strong doctrinally. It can teach the right things. And it can cause us to do the right things. The preaching could be sound. It could be straight out of Scripture and well applied. Using the wisdom of God to teach that. Our Bible classes might be strong doctrinally. Even our small group studies, even what is taught in the families here at church. All of them, if we want to be a sound church, needs to be built on sound doctrine. Look in uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 that we have on the screen. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. And he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He's saying here, if there's someone who is not following good Bible doctrinal teaching, well, they've got some problems and those problems need to be addressed. So a church can be weak or strong doctrinally. We've seen that. All of us have have been in some Bible classes or heard some sermons that maybe when we leave, we say, I don't know that he he got all that right. Maybe you thought that this week. I hope not. But we look at, at different Teachers and we say, oh, I don't think that's the way that that re- I don't think that's really what that passage is teaching. But we need to be strong doctrinally and we need to understand that church can be weak or strong. This also applies to leadership. A church can be weak or strong, not only in doctrine, but in leadership. Back to chapter Titus, chapter one. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, when Paul is teaching Titus here about what a, an overseer of the church and elder should be like. He says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First of all, we see the tie-in between leadership and the doctrine that is taught. You can't be an effective leader in the Lord's church if you're not abiding by the strong doctrine that the Lord has provided us. But we can have strong leadership. 
that holds to the doctrine of the gospel. We can also have weak leadership, leadership that doesn't address problems, leadership that doesn't uh, concern itself with the well-being of its members or look after the flock. We need to understand that the leadership of a church, the eldership is responsible for the soundness that literally is the health and the well-being of the church. They ought to be able to teach. And their main job, as the men here well know, is to keep the church pure and to keep it growing up into maturity in Christ. But a church can either have strong leadership or weak leadership, maybe even a mixture sometimes. And I believe that a church can be weak or strong in the amount that it separates itself from the world. I hope we understand here, and we're going to make a little bit more personal application here in a minute, that when I say the church can be, don't think of a building with uh, blank faces inside that you don't really know. Think about the people here that are members of this church. Think about your local church. Your local church can be weak or strong in these things because of the people that are in it, and you're a part of that. Understand we're talking about you and we're talking about me. What about our separation from the world? Second Corinthians chapter six. Surely a familiar passage to us as Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers and really separating ourselves. At the end of verse 16, he says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What we're seeing here is is verse 16 sort of sets up what God wants. And then 17 and 18 tell us what it takes to get that, what it takes to get to that point. He says, I want to be your God and you to be my people. I want to walk with you. Walk with you a la Genesis chapter 2 and 3 before things went sideways. He wants to have a personal relationship with his people. When we see Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what do we see coming from the throne of God except the river of life with the tree of life and trees of life, really? We see the garden again. Think about this. When they built the tabernacle, if you go back to that last half of the book of Exodus, and you start looking at the details that were put into that, what sort of, what sort of imagery was being woven into those, those curtains or into the basins or the pillars? It was garden imagery. They were fruits and they were uh, flowers and they were trees and they were bushes. And being in the tabernacle was almost a physical sense of being in the garden. Again, it represented a relationship with God. God wants that relationship with us. He says that in verse 16. But then he says, if you want that, he says, I want that. But really the ball's in your court. If you want that, you've got to separate yourself from worldliness. You've got to come out from among the world and be separate from them. Then I will be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. Verse one of the next chapter, Paul really sums up the thought. And he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We can be strong in the way that we separate ourselves from worldliness. That begins with me and it begins with you and it begins on our hearts, how willing we are to do that. But we can also be weak in that. We asked a question a minute ago, how, 
how many more worldly influences are you allowing in your life? Well, when you think about that, maybe we're contributing to weakness in the church, even unintentionally. This is about personal morality. This is about the heart of the individual. And this is about the church also engaging in secular things that the church is not, is not designed to be a part of. What I want us to point out, though, is sometimes we look at a church and we say, that's a strong church. But this one over here, that's a weak church. This one's a sound church. This one's not a sound church. But really what we ought to be looking at is these are churches that represent varying degrees of strengths and weaknesses. That's how the New Testament was referring to churches. When you look in, the, in Revelation 2 and 3, seven churches there. Which ones were the good ones? Which ones were the bad ones? Well, we, we have a little bit more sympathy with them. We've looked at, a fee, at Ephesus. We'll look at them again here in a minute. They had a lot of good things. They had some bad things. They just needed to fix the bad things, and they'd be a lot better off. I believe that's how the Lord looks at his people today. There's a lot of good things going on, but there are some things you need to work on. You know, sometimes labels are helpful, but sometimes they leave a little bit out. It's, you know, using a meat cleaver when you really should be using a scalpel. You you know, you cut off a little more than you intend to. And so we need to think of this. You know, if a church is strong in some of these things and not in some other things, how do we judge those churches or should we be judging those churches? I want us to look at some examples, though. Some examples. And we're going to see some examples of churches that have various strengths. They have some strong points coupled with some weak points. And maybe the other church has different strengths and they're strong with other people who are weak and vice versa. But we remember that this is made up of individuals of differing strengths and weaknesses. But also the church is still seen by the Lord as a whole, as a church. He doesn't say, well, you know, Ephesus, you've left your first love. It's really only a few of you that have done that. So I'm going to remove their candlesticks. He says, as a church, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. And so we see the Lord sees church as, as a unified unit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're not going to re-preach Monday night's lesson and talk about love, maturity, and unity. In case you've forgotten what three points we talked about Monday or weren't able to make it. That was that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse one, Paul writing here in this section about considering your brother more than the food you're eating. And he says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That is, all of us know that these false gods don't really exist. But he goes on to say this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He says, you can know every verse in the Bible, but if you don't apply it with love, well, it doesn't do you a lot of good. We've covered that. you know, to a great extent this week. And what we see about the church at Corinth is that they were weak in their love for one another. They didn't have unity. They didn't have love. They were not preserving the purity of the congregation. We look at chapter five and we see that. But an interesting thing before we just throw them under the bus occurs when we look back in chapter six. Chapter six, look at verse nine. Before we say, oh, Corinth, let's just... Kick them to the curb because that's, that's some liberal group. That's some unconservative group and they're, they're immoral and they're terrible. We need to look at verse, verse 9 there. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Yeah, you know, Corinth had some problems, but they also had people that were still obeying the gospel message. People whose hearts were still being changed from worldliness and being converted to the image of Christ, which is an ongoing process. And they were still having some good things happening. People leaving worldliness. That's a mark of strength when we can be a little less worldly than we used to be. That's a good way to go. What about Ephesus? We've talked about them this week, too. Was that a a strong church or a weak church? Revelation chapter 2. Turn over there with me and hold your finger there as we read. We'll we'll go back to it in just a second after this. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. The angel of the church writing here, speaking of the Lord, and he says, the Lord says this about you. Revelation 2, 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. If we stop there, we see a church that's strong doctrinally. They're teaching the right things. And they are not standing for error. That's the mark of a strong church, is it not? That's a mark of a strong church. But we continue in verse 4 and it says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And he goes on to say, you need to remember that. And you need to repent of the sin that you've committed in forgetting your first love. Is it a strong church or a weak church? It's one of the Lord's churches. And it's got a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. And God is saying... Where there's strengths, I commend you. Where there's weaknesses, you're responsible for repenting of those things and strengthening those weaknesses. Or else, as he says, he will remove his lampstand. Strong in doctrine, weak in love. What about Thyatira? We go down to verse 19 in the same chapter. We'll read 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's a pretty nice thing to say about a church. What if, what if the Lord was to give us that commendation here? You're working, you've got love, you've got faith, you're serving one another, you're enduring patiently with the trials of life, and your latter works exceed the first, you're growing, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We see a church here who's loving and faithful and serving, but they're tolerating false teaching and immorality in their midst. Weak or strong. He commends their strengths and he says, you need to repent of your weaknesses. And so what about us? What about the church here at Northfield? What about the church where you normally attend and and are a part of that local body? What are the strengths here? If the Lord was to give a report, what would be the strong points that he points out? But then would he then turn and say, but here are some things I have against you. Here are some weaknesses you have. In modern talk, we might say, this is what makes you sound. But these are some things that are not sound. In our own physical bodies, we can be mostly healthy. But if we've got a cancer in us, that part of us is not healthy. And it needs to go for the overall health of the body. And we can see how that relates and how it's a dynamic, uh, a dynamic picture here. We need to understand that each person, each individual has an influence on the body here. 
And so we go on. We ask another question. Am I liberal or am I conservative? Am I liberal or am I conservative? We hear it all the time. What are we actually saying when we ask that question? Because there's confusion, especially in such a politicized world. Maybe we get the wrong impression about what we're actually saying there. First of all, when we're speaking of biblical matters and we ask this question, well, they're liberal or are they conservative? This has nothing to do with who you vote for. This has nothing to do with political leaning at all. And sometimes here in the South, maybe we get that a little backwards. Oh, you voted Democrat? Well, then you're a liberal Christian. You probably go to a liberal church, right? Because you couldn't possibly go to a conservative church and vote Democrat. You know, we, we sometimes think that way and we get the picture wrong. When we're talking about liberal or conservative, whether an individual or a church, it centers and it hinges on the way we view scriptural authority. The way we see the Bible, when I read the pages of the the word of God, is this something that is bearing an impact on my life? Does it direct me? Does this have an authority to tell me how to live? Or is it just suggestions on things that maybe I could do a little better in or take it or leave it? Notice what's said in 2 John, verse 9. 2 John, verse 9, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says it this way. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching, but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. What is John saying here? What he is saying here is that we have a liberal view of Bible authority. That is a a more lax view, a looser view on that. We're saying, well, I'm a little less limited on what I can do or what I should do or what I have to do. I'm sort of going to take that with a grain of salt. And if we have a conservative attitude that says, no, what the scripture says, that's binding. And I, and I am restrained by that. And that dictates what I can and can't do. And I believe that that's what that means. I believe John says that if we approach scripture and say, ah, take it or leave it that what we're essentially doing is we're not remaining in Christ's teaching, but going beyond it. You think about a kid that's got his coloring book out and it's got the lines and it's such a good thing when they color inside the lines. Essentially, that child might have a conservative view of what those lines represent. But not all kids color inside the lines. Some say, hey, that's just a suggestion. And my artistic skills can't be contained by those lines. Some people sort of think that way spiritually, too. They say, you know, the Bible, that's just too restrictive for the way I want to show my spirituality and my religiousness. That has an importance on whether or not we are uh, viewing the scripture as as binding or not, whether we're conservatively viewing that or not. And if we hold to that pattern, if we're looking at the pattern of scripture and we use that pattern that is revealed and we say, here's what it says. And then I take Bible wisdom that I've learned from reading all the rest of the Bible. And we say, I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is what it says. This is how, how I can be changed by that. And I'm going to let that dictate my daily life. Well, I think that's what it means to be conservative is to apply that. Second Timothy 1.13, we read a minute ago, follow the pattern, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Follow the pattern. We must hold the view that if I can't justify it from Scripture, then I will not do that thing. 
if the church cannot justify it from Scripture, being honest intellectually and rightly applying Bible wisdom to what it says, if we cannot find justification for a thing, we must say, I will not do that thing. I'm going to hold to the pattern. I'm not going to go beyond the teaching of Christ. Some say, well, that's just so restrictive. And Galatians 5 says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Not what it's talking about right there, is it? That's a passage that's talking about not binding or not following the the binding of Judaism anymore. That has nothing to do with whether or not we use New Testament scripture to dictate how to live our lives. Yes, we're free in Christ in a lot of ways, but we're also governed and constrained by Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, and 7, and 8, he says, whoever you submit yourself to willingly as servant, well, they're your master, you're their servant, whether to sin and unrighteousness or to righteousness. But in reality, it's just following. It's not a restriction to say, oh, you're just... Uh, you know, you can't really live because you're just so restricted by the word of God. No, it's not that. It's just looking at what God said and following the pattern, following the standard in, in, an, in a word, obedience. If we boil it down to that, it sort of cuts through the confusion, doesn't it? Oh, I just think the Bible's a little too restrictive on some of these things. Well, no, we're just reading what the Bible says, using Bible wisdom and applying that to our life. That's obedience. We're just doing what God said. What about Hebrews chapter eight and verse five, Hebrews chapter eight and verse five. Notice what the Hebrew writer says there. Hebrew writer, of course, Hebrews is all about how much better things are in Christ. And he's referring to here of this new covenant that we have in Christ, as opposed to that old covenant that was given through Moses But he talks about why all those things existed leading up to the New Testament, leading up to Christ. It says they serve as a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We could make a whole lesson. We could go on and on and on about what would have happened if Moses did not follow the pattern. You know, we don't have to do that because if you keep on reading in your Old Testament and on into the New Testament, you see what happened when people did not abide by the pattern that God set for them. There's never a good outcome. Never a good outcome. Let us not think that we are above and less governed by the word of our all-wise and all-loving God than people in our Bibles. But let's move on. What's my attitude towards Scripture? What's my tipping point? If I, visit, if I see myself on a scale and I've got one foot on each side, am I leaning more towards godliness or am I leaning towards worldliness or am I trying to stay right in the middle? Get your foot off the worldliness side and get on the righteousness side. Do you toe the line? Do you, do you, do you play that game? Well, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically say I can't do this or that. So I'm going to see if I can get away with it. I'm going to do that thing. Do you toe the line? Do you try to kick a little dirt on it and blur that line? Or do you look at Scripture and say, Scripture is authoritative. The words of Christ, the words of his apostles, those mean something to me personally. And they mean something to the church today and how it can and how it should operate and what it should not do. 
We've got one major point left in our lesson in our week. We're going to talk about the tipping point. Okay, so the tipping point does not mean like we ask at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, do you view Christianity as being judged based on the number of good things you do versus the number of bad things? And if you've got more good, well, you're okay. Or if you've got more bad, well, you need to you know, get rid of those or do one more good thing. That is, an, that is an old religious belief held by many, but that's not what Christianity is about. The tipping point in our life with Christ is when we decide it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's when things change. When you come to the cross and you say, Jesus died for me because of my sins, I will live for him. That's when life changes. And it won't change up to that point. It won't change anywhere before that. It won't change when you say, you know, I'm sort of interested in reading the Bible. Or, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dab, dabble and come into church or in religious things. Or I've been baptized once before, but, you know, I'm not really going to take it seriously. Life changes when your heart changes. When you're truly converted to Christ. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? Earlier in the week, I think at least twice, I've said two different books are my favorite. But Romans chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul used a lot of life and death metaphors. We mentioned Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and it's Christ who lives in me. And here he says, Okay, we've talked about being crucified with Christ. You've got that image. Let's change images a little bit. Live as a living sacrifice to God. Someone that is constantly putting themselves to death, offering themselves up, giving up themselves to give for God. That's your spiritual worship. And he goes on to say, here's the trick. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't look like the world. Don't try to... to, to justify living like the world, he says, be transformed, be changed. Go through a metamorphosis. No longer be the very hungry caterpillar. Come out the beautiful butterfly. You can be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. Your mind has to change. When you come to Christ, some people think baptism is just about getting wet. Some people think that baptism is the last step that you gotta do to get into heaven. Baptism is the natural outcome of someone whose mind is changing. Someone who wants to see things differently. Someone who says, my mind has changed about sin. I've repented of those things. I'm not going to do that anymore. My mind has changed about what I believe about Jesus. My mind has changed about who I'm going to live for. I'm not going to live for me. I confess that Jesus is my Lord. I'm transforming. I'm transforming my mind. And through Christ, we can be transformed into someone we weren't before. But he says we've got to be transformed by the renewal of our mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, don't be like the world. Be more and more like Christ every day by changing your mind. And he says this isn't just some mental, emotional experience. He says it takes place because then you look at the world around you and you look at the scripture and you discern, that is, you make a decision, what is the will of God? What does he want me to do? 
what is good, what's acceptable, what's perfect. And then he says, once you figure out what that is, go and do it. That's the tipping point when you're truly converted to Christ. Christ calls us to be pleasing to God in every way. That means, as we've talked about this week, there's no room for selfishness. Selfishness says, I'd rather do what I want to do than what God wants me to do. Selfishness says, I'd rather do what I want to do than what someone else wants to do. Selfishness is the antithesis of Philippians 2, where we have the mind of Christ and we drop and we drop and we humble ourselves so that God may exalt us. This is not a math equation of one more good thing than bad thing and you'll make it into heaven in the end. It's about transformation. And so how does this tipping point go on? Well, holding to the standard begins in my personal life. Let's make some applications. Let's make this real to me and you. We've been talking about terms and and labels and and transformation and, and conservative and liberal, all these things. What we're really talking about tonight is how you view the standard of the word of God. That's what this lesson is really about. But it begins in my personal life. Really, it begins in my mind, in my heart. And when I discern in my life that the standard applies to me, my heart changes, my mind changes, my actions change, my words change, the way I see other people changes. Holding to the standard starts with me. Let's reverse that a little bit. We've been talking about what the church looks like. Is the church weak or strong? The church is only going to be as strong as you are. If you want the church to be stronger, if you're afraid that the church is getting weaker, Why don't you strengthen yourself a little bit? Why don't you go to God and pray for strength and try to grow just a little bit more? If all of us do that, the church will be strong. If all of us say, I sure wish the church would be stronger, and that's all we do, the church will fail. But I start in my life, and then that spreads to my home. Men, we talked about on Sunday that parenting lays on us. The buck stops here with dad. We're to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It doesn't matter what the world says about who's in charge of the family. God says that the man is in charge and that the responsibility rests on him. If you have decided in your personal life, I'm going to hold to the standard, that means that you're going to take that to your family. And you're going to teach your family, this is the standard that we're going to walk by. We're going to be a family, like Joshua says, that serves the Lord. That's who we are. That's what we're going to be. And you know what? If all of us start to think this way and we change our hearts and our minds and ourselves and then we change our spouses and our children and the way that we parent and we teach and we teach respect and obedience, what comes next? It's a beautiful thing, the church. Then the church is influenced. And I would suggest that even if one person was stronger and they affected just their family, the church would be stronger. Why don't we all get on board? Why don't we all do that? And get just a little bit stronger. Put away some worldliness that we've been letting creep into our lives over the past few years. We've let our guard down. Let's put that away. Let's get back to where we need to be. So, as a member of the Lord's Church, if I want the Lord's Church to be whatever you call it, conservative or sound, holding to the pattern of Scripture, pleasing to God, if I want the church to be that, then as a member, I've got to apply sound doctrine to my life. If the preacher's preaching things that are true, you need to listen to it. If the elders are leading in a way that is for the well-being of the church and it's scriptural, you need to submit to it. 
and you need to do your part. Apply sound doctrine in your life. Again, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Again, follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I need to be, allow myself to be led by godly leadership. We talked a little bit about on Sunday how the, the concept of postmodernism is not really in favor of, of submitting to authority. Because after all, to submit to authority, you've got to admit that that authority is holding to some form of truth that has bearing on you. The world today doesn't like that. They say, no, it's your truth and my truth, so you can't tell me what to do. We've got to admit, you know, God's word says that there's a right way and a wrong way. And those men that are leading the church as shepherds and as overseers, they're trying to do things the right way. And if they are, I need to support them and I need to submit to them, to that godly leadership. I need to be working personally to make myself separate from the world. We've talked about 2 Corinthians 6. We talked about how we can separate ourselves from the world and I will be your God and you will be my sons and daughters. And because we've got all these hopes and promises, we need to be working to perfect godliness in our lives. And as a church, as a church, we ought to be willing to identify and take a stand against false teaching. The church at Ephesus did that. We saw that in Revelation 2, verse 2. When they saw people that were false, that were teaching false things, they would not stand for that. They identified it. And they drew a line between what was right and what was wrong, and that line didn't move. They had some weakness, but that was a good thing. That's what our church ought to be doing. That's what the church here ought to be doing. We need to be cultivating and then submitting to godly, qualified leaders. We talked about that on Sunday. We've got to start planning now. We've got to start planning now and continue working with men and with women to teach them to be godly leaders, whether in the home or in whatever roles they can fulfill, and especially as elders in the church. We've got to start that now. And as a church, we've got to abstain from these sinful cultural influences. In this way, if the church is operating this way, then the church can help to train the families to be what they need to be. And then in turn, they can help to train the individuals to godliness. And we see that we're just helping each other out. But what it starts with is a transformed mind. It starts with understanding that this life is not about me. It's about being pleasing to God. And if I'm not pleasing to God, I've missed the whole point. You see people that just have missed it, right? People in the world and we look at them and we say, why don't you see this? How are you missing this? But I want to suggest if we're not careful, we might just be a little too big for our britches and we might be uh, looking at their speck and missing the glaringly obvious problems that we've got. We've got to be working. And so the point. What's the point, Daniel? Let's get to the point. We've got to be careful We've got to be careful and understand that just because we as a church or as an individual is sound on a couple of the more notable issues, that's not a guarantee that the church is sound. But what is, is when we know that we're holding to Bible authority and we are taking a conservative view of of Bible authority. And I would suggest a liberal view on loving one another. Be a little more loose with that. Be a little more free with that. Show love, show kindness, show generosity, spend more time together. Jesus would have been uh, not appreciated by a lot of conservative people today, politically speaking, because of the way that he cared for so many people. 
as individuals, we could stand to be a little more liberal in that way. Again, not politically, but liberal in our love, free with our love for one another and care and guiding people back to the cross. The Bible doesn't use terms like liberal and conservative, but it does use terms that are much more easily understood. Terms like faithful and unfaithful. It talks about churches that are faithful and churches that are unfaithful. And it talks about people who are faithful and people who are unfaithful. And so my plea to you and to me tonight, if we leave this place, I want us to think about always holding fast to the pattern of truth that's found in the word of God. If we do that, we're doing something right. Let's, let's stick with that course. Let's do the right thing. Let's read our Bibles and apply them to our lives and be changed and transformed every time we read the pages of the word of God. Thank you for your attention this week. I want to turn our minds just for a second to the cross. When you look at the cross and you see our savior beaten and battered, his blood shed, pouring down his body. And you you understand who he is, that he is the creator of the universe. Yet here he hangs gasping for air, slowly dying for you and your sins. If that makes you a little emotional, that's a good thing because what's happening is the the creator is suffering violently at the hands of the people he came to save. Whenever we sin, think of that picture. Whenever you do something willfully that you know God would not be pleased with, that separates you from him, think of that image and let it transform you even more. Remember what he has done for you because of the love that he has for you so that you can have hope for something that is better than what we are enjoying even here on earth. When you think about that, if you're not a Christian, you understand what God's done for you. Make a change even tonight. Come to him because he loves you. He gave himself for you. And if you're a Christian you got sin in your life and you've not been doing like you ought. You know that. You feel that. And you know what it is. I'm not going to go down a list, but I know all of us can look and say, here's some ways I can do better. Here's some sins that I've committed that I think still separate me from the Lord. Let me make those right. If we can help you tonight to make yourself right with Christ, come right now while we stand and sing.